You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. We put together some extra bonus content from our discussion from Cage Kings by Michael Thompson, episode 218, where he taught us the history of the UFC, the media around it, and the fighters' pains and successes. Uh, we're going to call this uh, episode 218.2. It's really the first time we've done this. To give you a little background for the guests we're having on today, uh, last spring I was at church for our Wednesday night men's group that we call Real Men. Our guest for this discussion spoke at that. And after hearing his story and reading Cage Kings, and just so you know, Matt, in fairness, I wasn't going to go that night to church. My wife told me I had to. Um, I heard your story and I read Kate Kings and I said, you know what, self, we needed to have Matt on a book with legs. So I would love to welcome Matt, uh, the lawyer, Linlin, to join us to talk about his path to the Olympics, to UFC, to the Supreme Court. And we also talk about uh, what you're doing now and what was what that was like during the pandemic. So Matt, uh, glad you could be here with me. Cole, thanks for having me. And uh, the law, but uh, the lawyers. Oh, yeah. Sorry. The, the law. Sorry. My bad. Um, and we'll talk about that because the law is you are you are definitely a man of the law. So to make sure our tribe is familiar with you, I'm just going to uh, go a little bit around your background. Not too much because I want to I don't want to steal any of our the thunder of our conversation. But to give our audience a background, um, Matt won a national title while Clackamas Community College before attending the University of Nebraska where he went 33-1 and one his senior year and won the Big 8 title. Matt wrestled freestyle and Greco-Roman before focusing on Greco-Roman for the 2000 Summer Olympics, where he won the silver medal. His first UFC match was UFC 29. Matt has also coached the U.S. national wrestling team at the 2016 Rio Olympics and the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. So, Matt, first off, you know, I had friends that wrestled in high school and whatnot. You know, there's a particular kind of young man that loves wrestling, and so I'd love to hear, like, what got you into wrestling? What was, what was that thing that just suddenly made you say, this is, this is my game? Oh, that's a, it's a great story because uh, I was never involved. I grew up as a pretty rural uh, boy, um, riding ponies and, and jumping horses. I was an equestrian athlete, and I was pretty accomplished in the sport until my mother told me that uh, we could no longer afford to, for me to ride horses and, and continue on that path. Okay. And you've got you've got the athletes like uh, Springsteen's daughter that are well funded that that are able to participate in those kind of sports. Um, so I had taken a couple uh, wrestling classes at my junior high, seventh and eighth grade year, um, just for like six weeks, and kind of didn't really think about it till I got into high school and it was required in our gym class uh, for freshman boys. And the coach uh, convinced me that I was really good and I had a lot of potential. And uh, I'm sure he was uh, just trying to get me to come out <laughs> for participation numbers. But uh, that was really the uh, start of my wrestling uh, career. And then after the high school season, I did something called freestyle and Greco-Roman, which are the two international styles that are competed in the Olympic Games. And uh, I went 0-8 in that first weekend uh, of doing international style of wrestling mm -hmm. and what I found out was that I needed to get to a club and surround myself with quality athletes and good coaches and I was blessed enough to uh, wind up in a, a wrestling club that in 1985 um, featured the uh, the coach from the 1984 Olympic team Pavel Kotzen 
and mm -hmm. uh, Pavel was a former Soviet coach and had moved over to the United States uh, to coach the U.S. team in the 84 Olympic Games. So you get going with him, and again, you know, you, you hadn't had any success your first go at it without, you know, good coaching. Um, was, it, was it high school wrestling where this really got going for you and you started to see a lot of success? Um, I, I wouldn't say I was really successful in high school or even post-high okay. school. I was um, not recruited to, you know, any major colleges. So I ended up going to a uh, community college that was in my hometown. Mm -hmm. Clackamas Community College. Uh, yep. We, I ended up, you know, coaching there and helping, the, helping the team out as well later in in my career. But uh, uh, we had a pretty successful program, and at Clackamas Community College. But uh, nothing outstanding. I did win a national title, and then I was recruited to multiple Division One programs. And uh, ultimately, I decided to uh, choose the University of Nebraska. So as I think about it, to this day, the, the, uh, what was the Big 8, now the Big 12, and if God knows how college football is going to change, it might be the Big 28 someday. Um, but, you know, the Big 12 has really been a powerhouse wrestling conference. So to go to U the University of Nebraska, that, that's not just any Division One program. That's the best conference in America to go wrestling. Yeah, that, that was, if I'm going to do this, I was going to, you know, I'd definitely try to get into the best program I could, you know, surround myself with the best competition, um, you know, put myself right in the heart of, you know, wrestling country, you know, where, where people do this sport. Sure. So and around that time, you run into Randy Couture. Yeah, I met Randy um, my junior year. It was my first year at the University of Nebraska, and mm -hmm. he was an athlete at Oklahoma State who was one of our rivals, but... Uh, you know, we, we got to know each other um, then, and then we competed on national teams together and trained together for years. So then, you know, you're, you're in the wrestling community, you're in the wrestling world, you're at a strong school. What, what was the first time, you know, as you, you read Cage Kings, I read Cage Kings, um, you know, I, my first introduction to MMA was 2006. I went to go see my brother at the University of New Mexico, and he said, hey, there's, a, there's a, uh, a UFC fight on tonight. Let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings. And I had never been, you know, seeing see a UFC fight. So I thought, sure, let's go. And we get there. And in, in Albuquerque, I mean, in 06, this is like the biggest game in town because in Albuquerque, like, there's no pro sports teams, you know, like most major cities. And we get there and it's like, this is fight night. You know, this is a major social event uh, where we were at. And um, so that was my introduction. What was, what was the first time you saw it live? Yeah, I'm sure uh, it was pretty big in, in Albuquerque. You got Jackson's MMA and a lot of top yeah, ranking. Yeah, a lot of houses there. Came out of that program. Uh, well, I was I grew up watching boxing and fight sports and uh, with my mom. And then when I got to college, I had a rowdy bunch of teammates that always loved to watch Tyson fight in that era. Yeah. And this this fight came on in 93, and we were just super psyched to watch this this fight and see what this was about. And I, I mean, I was intrigued from, from the first time I saw it. But, but did you know then that you're like, hey, I'm going to do that? Like, that's, that's where I'm going? Or was that just like, wow, that was really cool? What was like? What what was the feeling you had? Because obviously that was that was kind of shaping your path. But did you know it at the time? No, I thought, wow, that's really cool. Um, I thought it was a one-off event for sure. You know, like I didn't think this was something you could do as a as a post-college career. 
uh, for sure. And and I all absolutely had uh, Olympic aspirations. I had mm-hmm. I had set some goals to uh, compete in the Olympic Games and you know represent my country in the in the Olympics. And so I hadn't really. <laughs> thought too much about it at that point other than wow this is really interesting until I started seeing guys like Randy Couture and and other teammates of mine um, start to fight in these events sure so you leave you get out of Nebraska in 93 and then you talk about going to the Olympics which you did do but you know I, I butchered your name you being the law there's a reason why they call you the law and that was a process for you. So could you kind of teach us about, walk us from 93 getting out of college to eventually being in the Olympics in 2000? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very long story, uh, but I'll try to condense it for you. Um, 93, um, I, finished, I finished at the University of Nebraska, and I think you read my record. Uh, what, mm-hmm. what was it, like 34 and one or something? 33 and one. 33 and one. Yeah, you're and we were, we were done at Nebraska, my wife and I and, and our, our youngest son, or my, old, my oldest son, uh, my daughter wasn't born at this time. So we moved back to our home in, in Oregon. But uh, the training opportunities in Oregon were not uh, what they were when there was other athletes that were pursuing Olympic aspirations in wrestling. So sure. ultimately, uh, I got invited by Mike Houck, who was the national team coach, to move to Colorado Springs. And be a part of the inaugural resident athlete program in Colorado Springs. Okay. And my daughter was about two weeks uh, from being delivered. And so I told Mike, uh, as soon, soon as my daughter's two weeks old, we'll, we'll move out there. And okay. so, so about a month later, I was in Colorado Springs training there uh, at the Olympic Training Center. But uh, it's a pretty hard path because you got to fund all your, your living expenses. And now I had two children and and a wife. So my part-time job was driving the Zamboni after training all day until about <laughs> midnight or two in the morning. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a, it was a pretty rough path. And during that same time, we had a coaching staff change and we went from a transformational coach to a more of a transactional coach. And, mm-hmm. uh, it just wasn't the fit for me as it was for the same guy, for the guy that recruited me out there, Mike Houck, and then I had a, a different coach. It was just a different feel. And so I ultimately uh, got an, a job offer to coach at the University of Nebraska. And my coaches out there said they were going to help me um, prepare for the Olympic Games. And mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a really generous club that would uh, sponsor training partners to come train with me or send me to Europe for training opportunities and competition. Uh, that was a Sunkist Kids Wrestling Club. And so for the next, uh, you know, after I missed making the 96 uh, Olympic team that was in Atlanta, I went as, a, as an alternate for mm-hmm. the uh, Olympic Games and was even more inspired to, uh, you know, make a team in 2000. And I made every team, uh, the world championship teams from 97, 98, 99, all those uh, years. And in 99, I was practically uh, on the podium until I busted my elbow out and tore a pronator's Terry's muscle and had to get that repaired, thinking that this was probably the worst timing ever. It was a year before the Olympic Games and the qualifying uh, tournaments for the Olympics, so I needed to go qualify the weight class for the Olympic Games. And I had this torn muscle uh, in my arm that was just, you know, recently repaired. 
but ultimately I, I ended up going to uh, Cali, Colombia and beat uh, Nestor Almanza, who was a world champion, because the year before I'd uh, beat uh, the other Cuban uh, at that weight class, who was who ended up being a two-time Olympic champion, Filberto um, Esqui, won, won the games in 96, and he ultimately went down to weight class because I'd beaten him a couple times prior to that. So I think he thought his best chance to qualify was at 68 kilos, and I ended up uh, wrestling a, another guy that was a world champion to qualify that weight class. And I made the team, and then I went to the Olympic trials, um, thinking, you know, I'm wrestling a guy that I've beaten 13 times in a row. Um, I should, you know, be able to perform pretty good to make the team. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a formality, really, um, until the matches were completely misjudged, and there was just it just felt really eerie and odd. And then I. Uh, Followed the uh, procedure set up by the organizing committee, which was USA Wrestling at the time, and uh, they refused to follow their own rules, which uh, I filed a protest to review the film, and they said that they refused to follow review the film, so they denied me due process. And um, there was nowhere in, their, <clears throat> in the uh, rules that they could deny me due process. So ultimately, I took the case to the... Uh, um, Greco Roman Sport Committee, which they started pulling members off the sport committee. And you mentioned Randy Couture's name. He was actually one of the members on the sport committee that got removed. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reasoning for removing members was because they have bias. Well, as humans, we all have bias. And that's yeah, why you have biased. committees. Yeah. That's why you have committees and multiple people. So again, I was denied due process. And then ultimately, I went to an arbitrator, uh, and it was final and binding. And I re-wrestled the match and beat the athlete nine to zero um, in in the wrestle in the re-wrestle match, and uh, I was not put on the Olympic team because uh, they wanted to re-arbitrate the case and get a different ruling. E effectively, and, buying off time so that you would run out of time. That that was essentially what it was. So I ended up getting an injunction from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that um, kind of forced USA Wrestling's hand in the Olympic Committee to name me to the Olympic team. And ultimately, I went to Australia and was training and preparing. I walked in the opening ceremonies, and then I found out they were appealing it again in an international court of arbitration for sport. And they woke up this judge from the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, and he said, uh, frankly, you guys beat me. I have no jurisdiction outside the United States, but uh, if you ever plan on returning to the United States, I will have air marshals uh, at the airport waiting to arrest you. So, <laughs> you know, do what you must do. But uh, and and during this time, the the case was upheld by the United States Supreme Court as well. So, um, I think everything, you know, worked out in in the favor that it should. Um, and four days later, I had to compete in the Olympic Games and ultimately made it to the finals and uh, lost to Marat Kardanov from Russia in the Olympic finals. Uh, I've yet to meet an athlete that can say they won a silver medal and got to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, that, that is you, by far more interesting conversation with strangers than I'll ever have. So, so when did MMA start for you? <laughs> While I was training for the Olympics, um, okay. I got an I got an opportunity in 1997. I took that opportunity and took three fights and just absolutely loved the sport. And it wasn't MMA at that time; it was no holds barred. Um, yeah, there was no there rules. was literally 
there was literally three rules. You couldn't bite, you couldn't gouge somebody's eye out, and you couldn't attack them in the groin. Um, and I, I just really enjoyed this, but what I recognized was if I were to continue to pursue this um, sport, that I would really be distracted from reaching my goals in wrestling. Mm -hmm. So I took those three fights, uh, won, a, won a tournament, and just said, you know what, I'm gonna focus on the Olympic Games. And that was, that was probably what made it really hard when I, when I decided to focus on the games and then you know, making the team, qualifying the weight class for the United States, and then still trying to get pushed off the Olympic team was, made it really hard for me. So after the, after the Olympics, I basically was just like done. I was like completely done with USA Wrestling. And then I realized that uh, we were supposed to have the world championships in New York City in September um, in 2001. And so I took a break from fighting and uh, came, came back to the sport of wrestling. And uh, the games did not happen in New York in September 1, uh, in September 2001, because... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, 9-11. So, yep. right, so the the game, the uh, world championships were postponed till December and uh, ultimately moved up a weight class and came home with another silver medal for the United States. But uh, I had started my fighting career already at that time um, with the, the former owners of the UFC, UFC which was uh, SEG. Yeah, Semaphore Entertainment Group. Yeah, yeah, the original creator. So, so teach. So, if, uh, so in UFC twenty nine, was Semaphore still the owner when you fought in UFC twenty nine? Yes. Okay, so they were the owner, and so then, what, at what point, you know, in your fighting career with the UFC, did it change over? Because um, I don't have the dates here in front of me. Because you were in twenty nine, thirty one, thirty four. Was it in those first three fights? It changed over in thirty. And I 30, fought in okay. the first sanction. I fought in the first sanction fight in uh, mm -hmm. Trump Taj Mahal in to the uh, in thirty one, which was the first one that the Fertitas owned on the production. No, it was the second one. They bought it after twenty nine. They held okay. a provisionally sanctioned event in New Jersey and then got it sanctioned. And I fought in the first sanctioned event. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, can you teach us a little bit of the inside baseball? I mean, Semaphore had been running it as Michael talked about in his book. Um, Semaphore was kind of, they were running out of leash with, with the regulators in each of these states, the boxing commissions, the fighting commissions, et cetera. What was it like to watch to go, you know, you fought and won with Semaphore, you end up fighting under the Fertitas. W was there a big change just as a fighter in, the, in those productions? Or was that just kind of not much change, just the owners as you witnessed it? Early on, not much change. Right, right yeah. when things happened, it wasn't a lot of change until uh, maybe another year later, and they started getting their 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 bearings and understanding how to run these shows. And then it became all about contracts and negotiations. And I mean, I I showed up the fight. I was supposed to be on a main card. I got uh, relegated to an, an undercard because I refused to sign an addendum to my con. Well, I didn't refuse to sign it. They handed me an addendum to a contract uh, on a Tuesday and I was fighting on Saturday. And they yeah. said, oh, hey, I need you to sign this addendum to your contract. I said, okay. So this would be like
Dana White would be coming to you and saying, here's your addendum, or would that be the Fertitas themselves, or who would be coming to you with that? No, it was it was just the, the people in the office handing me a okay. handing me a, a paper going, hey, you need to sign this. And I'm like, this is a contract. I'm going to have an attorney look at this. And uh, Dana was like, you need to sign it now. And I was like, okay, as soon as my attorney gets back to me, I mean, the fight's sure. on Saturday night, buddy. Um, we got to... You know, we got time to do this, and ultimately it was it was about sponsors. And I got paid fifteen thousand to to show for that fight and fifteen thousand to win. My sponsor was paying me thirty grand, and yeah. they were trying to remove my sponsor from that from that fight. And ultimately, I did not uh, violate the regulations of that con of their new contract. I was very careful. I called my sponsor and said, "Hey, here's what they're telling me to do." They said, "Okay, don't don't worry about it. Just." Uh, you know, wear the, wear the merchandise around the event and anything that's not in, in the ring. And yeah. so I did that. Um, so, yeah, and then ultimately I was released the next Monday uh, after that fight uh, from that contract. I was hired back and then released again. And then ultimately Dana tried to hire me a third time, and I was like, I was out at that time. Um <laughs> So sure. that's, a, that's a, that's a story in itself right there. Well, cause I think, but you know, Michael talked a lot about how effectively those outside sponsorships were present in UFC and then anything inside the ring became the exclusive control really of UFC where it was effectively taking the money out of the pocket of the fighters and putting like a little bit of money in their pocket, but not much because obviously they were taking the lion's share of the sponsorship dollars inside that ring. Absolutely. I mean, most most sports athletes get about fifty percent, and we're under twenty still to this day. I think uh, UFC athletes are still under like twenty percent of of their net revenue. So yeah, I think mean, he points out that I think yeah, if you look at the overall ca cash flow of the business, they're twenty percent. It's it's you know forty percent would be more typical for more sports leagues. So because um, let's see, so I. Uh, uh, I, I guess, you know, we, we mentioned Dana a little bit, it, uh, you know, was, was it that contentious to deal with Dana or was Dana actually a fun guy to be around from time to time? No, he, he was very contentious. He was, <laughs> um, he was a bully. I mean, he was yeah. just an absolute bully. Um, you know, and, and, and I mentioned, you know, before, early in the conversation how, you know, I, I had a coaching staff change and Dana remind me a lot of, you know, coaches I've worked with um, before that are just like, this is how you're going to do it, you know? And it's like, um, okay, um, I don't need you around me. You know, I'll, I'll do it sure. my way. And as a subcontractor, I mean, you're, you're a 1099 employee, you know? Yeah, you <laughs> no, like no health benefits, employee. by the way. Yeah. Yeah, right. you, no you health benefits, no retirement, no, there's nothing. And same thing with USA Wrestling. Uh, you know, there was no, there was no benefits, no health. I mean, you were a 1099 employee all the time. Yeah. So, uh, what were your interactions with Joe Rogan then? I mean, because he became the color guy not long after the Fertitas changeover, and he was just kind of a, from what Michael said, he was just a natural fan of the sport, and that's what he, it gave him a lot of his, you know, enjoyment for for calling calling matches was that he actually enjoyed it. Um, it, it you know, it was Joe a completely different interaction compared to Dana. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, he didn't have any, you know, ownership role. Joe, yeah. Joe is a fun guy for sure to be around. He's definitely not my type of a individual. He's, 
is uh, very, he, I think he's coming around. I, I've listened to some of his podcasts and stuff, or at least uh, other podcasters that cover him and sure. talk about him being, you know, open more to the gospel. Um, but he was very anti-Jesus uh, type of a guy, like almost hostile towards the gospel. Um, but, you know, I mean, he was a guy you could have dinner with and have a good conversation with. Um, sure. You know, my, my wife went away from one dinner going, that guy hates women, doesn't he? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, it's it sounded like it, sweetheart. <laughs> we, well, yeah, I, I was going to say, I think something, uh, I don't think this went into the book, which, by the way, before I forget, I've, I will forget this. I, I brought up your name to Michael and, you know, didn't know if, you know, he, I assume he had knew of you, but didn't know. And he spoke very highly of you. And I mentioned we were going to do this extra content with him. And he mentioned that you actually got edited out of the book. So as soon as I found that out, I thought, okay, we further need to have Matt on because if this is something that would have normally been in the unedited edition, uh, I have to throw it in. By the way, on that note, uh, I think one of the one of the better, more interesting recent podcasts I uh, picked up was one of Joe Rogan's discussions. Um, uh, let's see. It was about... Uh, it was actually about, uh, you know, kind of questioning the questioning evolution. And it was interesting to your point, you know, someone like Joe Rogan that you don't exactly expect someone to be like receptive to asking the question, is science right? Or is evolution right? Or, you know, um, he had just an incredibly interesting discussion. So I don't disagree with you. Uh, I think as time changes, it's interesting to see how some of his content and topic and discussions have moved further right. Or to your point, like there, there's probably more likely there's a God, um, much more interesting. So, um, let's see, you know, what was the most, I mean, I was looking at over the, all the places you fought, what uh, of the venues you go to, what was the most interesting venue you ever, you ever fought either because the city was great or just because you got there and it's not what you expected for fans. Uh, I mean, I would definitely have to go to St. Petersburg. Um, when I fought, uh, Fedora Milianenko, who was the number one heavyweight at the, at the time, not in the UFC. I was the number one middleweight not in the UFC, even though UFC runs their own rankings. Um, the rest of the world had had us both ranked number one in the world at our perspective weight. So I moved up two weight classes. And uh, not only did I fight in that event, I got invited to uh, the presidential palace after the fight and had an evening with uh, Vladimir Putin. And uh, at that time, Prime Minister of Italy, Bernicelli, and for some weird reason, Jean-Claude Van Damme was there at the dinner as well. <laughs> Blood um, sword so, in the living, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, a, it was a, I mean, I love St. Petersburg as it is. And I was there for 10 days and eight of them was direct sunlight, which is like you get like 10 days a year direct sunlight yeah. in St. Petersburg. So um, it was an interesting uh, place to go. Um, I, I enjoyed traveling and and especially in in russia i mean that's a really uh interesting spot because they love combative athletes i mean it's just part of their culture so uh while you're training for the ufc in the early 2000s um you re-engage your relationship with randy uh and you guys start team quest um did you just have trouble finding a good gym no, what happened was um, we kind of we kind of skipped. So I went back to the uh, coach at the University of Nebraska while I was training for the Olympics. Um, mm -hmm. Immediately after I got home from the Olympic Games, 
uh, I had moved um, from, we had a coaching staff change at the University of Nebraska. I was hired, then my job was given to somebody else, and mm -hmm. I was just like, okay, well, I'll, I'll leave, but they owed me some money, um, which was a, for, at that time a pretty substantial amount of money. It was $8,000 for uh, work that I'd already done, so I had to go back to Lincoln to, to get paid and to move my family. Yeah. And all, I'd already moved my, my wife and my kids to Oregon, and I had them staying with friends and family while I, they came to the Olympics, but while I was in training camp, um, we, we were basically homeless, <laughs> you know, so until um, after the Olympic Games, I went back and, and moved my family's possessions and uh, started a car business um, in the same town that, that kind of my hometown, but where Randy was currently training mm -hmm. they lost the lease on their on their business which was a uh, a small like boutique gym that they were running and they said they needed a place to train and I had a car lot and we rolled some mats down in our garage and we just started training together mm, interesting so then you obviously you came back like you mentioned you coached in Nebraska but then you also came back later and you coached uh, Team USA uh, I was going to ask you, what was it like to go from being the athlete to being the coach for these athletes? Because obviously you had an, you know, you had a strange experience as you laid out earlier, you know, in your Olympic career. Um, what was that like as, you know, this person that had to fight uh, the politics of it versus being the coach in the middle of it? Uh, I mean, I, I, I had always coached. My, uh, my first coaching job was in 93 when I moved back after college. Um, I coached another athlete who ended up uh, being a pretty popular UFC fighter in high school wrestling, which was Chael Sonnen. Mm -hmm. um, I was I was also you know coaching at a couple different clubs, trying to make ends meet while I was training there. But ultimately, the training situation wasn't ideal. That's why I moved to Colorado, mm -hmm. um, and then that wasn't ideal. And so I moved to back to Nebraska, and then at, at this time. Uh, we were, we'd started a business, and my wife and I were uh, working at our car lot, and I, you know, I trained athletes that were fighting in in the UFC. I trained uh, wrestlers. Through I've always I've always coached. I've always worked with athletes. Um, so I think it was a natural progression when that job opened. And uh, the coach that held that position for over two decades. Um, retired from that I was a, it was a natural fit for me to go in there but you know my approach was definitely build relationships first um, connect before you can correct um, you've got to build these relationships with athletes so they so you have trust and buy-in and we were having a lot of success we um, we had some milestones that, um, in our sport that have never been accomplished before number of junior and um, cadet world medalists, so that's under 17 and under 20. Mm -hmm. And statistically speaking, you start getting athletes to win at 17, 18, 19 years old, these athletes can start winning medals at the senior level, Olympic medals, by the time they're 20, 21. So um, just setting the program up for, for success and, you know, but really doing it in a way that has never been done before in the United States, more of a European style model. 
Gotcha. So you're always, you know, like as you point out, while you were an athlete, you were coaching, you know, you're, you're kind of a man of many projects as, as I look at you. Um, so I'd love to just kind of uh, ask, what, what, are, what are your projects you're in right now? Well, my, my main project right now is getting my gym back um, to where it's profitable, where we're making a lot of, you know, making money and, and giving opportunities for, for especially youth. Um, I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, we passed something called Measure 110, which legalized every drug known to man. And we have a huge homeless problem. We have uh, a poverty problem. And it used to be downtown Portland was the most highest density uh, place and neighborhood in the city. It's now the neighborhood that my gym's in the middle of. And it's really become a, a place where kids can learn to build confidence and self-esteem. And I've created a nonprofit, uh, the Father's Heart Combat Sports, where I use a long-term athlete development model, uh, where I expose athletes to jujitsu, wrestling, boxing, kickboxing, all forms of martial arts, and let them kind of choose their path. I, I have a lot of athletes that have chosen to go the college wrestling route because there's a lot of opportunities to get degrees and and in college while they're competing. And, sure. But I have other athletes that are more interested in looking at an MMA route, um, but also, you know, jujitsu competition. There's just a lot of opportunities, but really it's just getting getting these, these young men and into the gym and helping them build their confidence and their skills at the same time. Well, yeah, and I think the other thing between hearing your story at, at church as well as, you know, hearing, um, you know, reading Michael's book is a lot of these athletes get done with college and are great wrestlers and they have nothing left, right? Like, what do you do next? What's your encore? And that's what the one thing that MMA has provided is where they could take their skills and do greater things, um, you know, in a, in a professional format beyond, you know, to your point, the Olympics. Um, the other thing too, and I want to honor you in this, Matt, like, you know, uh, the, the storytelling you did when I got to hear you live, I think, um, you know, what you do for young men and, you know, what you create in structure and how you're leading them, I, I think is, um, something to be applauded. And I, I just, I, I, I thank you a lot for that because I, I think in this world, like to your point, rampant drug use, cities falling apart, you know, you know, leading young men is our only way out of this. So I thank you for that. Um, I was going to ask you, where can people follow you going forward, Matt? Like what, what, what's the ways for people to keep tabs on you, what you're up to, you know, what the projects you're in? Okay. Um, my gym is, is team quest, team quest, mixed martial arts. Um, and my Instagram is M and, and probably the best place though would be my YouTube. I've got, uh, one of my young athletes that's, uh, putting up content for me he's filming me coaching and putting up videos of here's how to execute a takedown here's how to you know turn your opponent and score points just just different opportunities and that's on coach Matt Lindland's YouTube channel so that's a that's a great place we are we are building a website for the nonprofit the father's heart uh, sports that is not up yet. I just, I mean, I just filed with the state. I've got all the legal work. There's a, there's a ton of processes that go on building a nonprofit and then comes the raising the funds. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be done. And this was my, uh, one week, my vacation. Um, I've been back in Portland running my gym for one year and I decided to take a week off and I'm down here at the coast in Oregon in the Northwest corner of our state, uh, fish and salmon in the Columbia river. 
That's awesome. I, uh, I I think I mentioned to you, but I have family from that neck of the woods, and my, my dad sent me a text. They were out salmon fishing. I think they went out to Iwako today. So, uh, yeah, so very cool. So, Matt, I really appreciate this. It's been tons of fun. Um, thank you for your time today. Like I said to our audience, this was exclusive bonus content for a Book With Legs episode 218. We're calling it 218.2. If you enjoy this podcast, go to Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to a Book With Legs. Give us a review, tell others about the books, great authors, and guests like Matt, the Law Linlin to help build our worldly wisdom. For our tribe, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at SmeedCap. Thank you for joining us for A Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeedCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.